This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And before we begin this week's wonderful interview with Greg Zuckerman, uh, just a quick note. For those listening in real time in the release date, apologies that it's out a little bit late this week. And just as a note, for the next couple of weeks, we might be on a slightly irregular schedule with the Shavuot holiday pending uh, through this Monday and also perhaps some early summer travel. But rest assured, we will be largely online this summer and looking forward to some incredible guests we've already booked to bring to you down the pike. And just one other quick note about today's episode. We had some slight audio difficulties at the very beginning. So the first minute or so is a drop grainier, and then you'll notice a dramatic improvement throughout the rest of the episode. So bear with us and enjoy this wonderful interview with Greg Zuckerman. We are here with Greg Zuckerman, longtime journalist at the esteemed Wall Street Journal. How are you, Greg? I'm doing great. Great to be here. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, as we do with all of our guests, we like to take it from the top. And uh, I guess as a journalist, you can relate to that. Begin at the beginning of the story, yeah. intuitively enough. So take us back to the beginning. Where did you grow up? What was your early background like? Where are you from? And so forth. Sure. So um, from Providence, Rhode Island, which uh, makes people in the Jewish community sometimes think twice. So I'll say, where is Rhode Island? You get that usually in the New York area, uh, despite the uh, close proximity to New York. So uh, I grew up in Providence. My father was a professor at Brown University. Uh, my mother uh, sold life insurance. And it was a relatively small but very close-knit community. There was a um, modern Orthodox a day school that pretty much everyone went to. It was it was a really nice and diverse school growing up. Had a chance to meet all kinds of kids, conservative, reform, non-Orthodox, all together with Orthodox. You don't really have too many of those anymore. And I went to a camp that was very similar, Camp Yavna in Northwood, New Hampshire, which also had a really nice mix. Um, and then in high school, it became more of a yeshiva, and it progressively went, uh, moved to the right. And it was fine. It's just that there wasn't enough of a local constituency for that. It was a dormitory. So there were kids from all over uh, New England, came down from Bangor, Maine, Portland, Maine, all kinds of places, and they all came down there, but it kept getting smaller each year, and by the end, unfortunately, I, I had a good four years, but it doesn't exist any longer. And um, a couple of shuls that got enough people that you can go back and forth a little bit, and um, a, a small but cl close-knit community, uh, it had a, I have a lot of great memories. Early on, did you have an interest in uh, in journalism? Was that and early pensions for you. What were some of your early interests, proclivities? So I was a guy obsessed with Wall Street. I had no thoughts of journalism, writing, and, and didn't write for, we didn't have a school newspaper. It was a small little uh, Yeshiva Day School. I think we had my graduating class, maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 kids. And so you graduated top 10, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> I did, as a matter of fact. Congratulations. <laughs> Couldn't help it, yeah. Thank you, thank you. Um, and I went to Brandeis University because... So I needed a school that was easy to be Orthodox. There aren't that many. I mean, uh, there are 
thousands of uh, colleges out there, but in my position, you need a place where there's a minion, you need a place where there's kosher food and a place you can just be comfortable. And of course, I know Brandeis has all that and more. What did you get involved with while you were there? Mostly focused on my studies, played some sports, ran for uh, student government, but lost. Um, and it was a group, with a group of friends, we just sort of poked fun at each other for four years. So that was kind of uh, what I focused on most of my four years. So it sounds like you weren't really focused on journalism at that point. What were you interested in? What were you thinking about at that time? I always thought I'd go work on Wall Street. I enjoyed markets, enjoyed people making money, losing money, how companies were put together and conglomerates. So I was always fascinated. I'll never forget that. There were, I remember looking at the back of a Skippy uh, peanut butter jar, and I was like, wait, there's no company called Skippy? It's actually owned by somebody else, like Procter & Gamble? That's kind of weird. They, own, they also own jam and all kinds of other things that didn't even cross my mind. I thought you know, it would be a unique company, Skippy. Um, so yeah. and something about business kind of fascinated me, and I figured I'd go kind of work on Wall Street. So is that, in fact, what happened? Did you go work on Wall Street right after Brandeis? Yeah, so I did well at Brandeis, and I figured, okay, good school, did well there, graduate and go work on Wall Street. And I went and sent off resumes after graduating, and I couldn't even get an interview, let alone a job. It was a tough time at Wall Street. I didn't have any experience. I was you know, working in camp all those summers and didn't think about doing an internship or anything. My father was an academic. He didn't really know anybody on Wall Street. Tell us about that camp experience because you mentioned it before and it sounds like it was consequential in your life and also perhaps, uh, as you're referencing, maybe detrimental when it came to your early career prospects. Yeah, so I went to Brandeis and I had a good four years and it was a good school and um, never really did too much traveling and really wanted to. I was going to go through Europe one summer and I met the director of Camp Roma in California while I was actually at Hebrew University for a semester. And he said, well, rather than you spend all this money to go through Europe, I'll pay you to come to work in California in Ojai, California. And it sounded like a good deal to me. So I was the Rosh Tefillah and Rosh Sport there. They kind of wanted to send a message to kids that you could both be into sports, and I really was, and also be into tefillah, be into uh, prayer. So I ended up spending three summers there and had a blast, met all kinds of interesting people, eventually met a woman who introduced me to my wife. So it worked out in a lot of different ways. And yeah, it was great to kind of show kids that you could play ball and be into sports and yet take religion seriously as I did. Got it. So it sounds like the Wall Street dream was at least temporarily put on hold. Uh, What did you in fact do after this time in college and uh, with that camp experience, but not a lot of real world business experience? So the closest I could get was working for a banking, banking newspaper, but it wasn't even writing. I was putting conferences together. And it was just a miserable experience. I got fired from that. Um, it was inappropriate, some of the stuff that was going on. We kind of went to the company and they said, all right, thanks for telling us, but you're all fired. <laughs> um, and at that point, the only experience I had was putting conferences together. So I got another job doing business conferences. And I was like doing it half-hearted. I was writing screenplays during the day and trying to think about what I should be doing and then starting businesses. And my mind wasn't really focused. And I got fired from that. And I'll never forget a woman, an older woman, walking me down the stairs. I'm carrying my box of my things out. And at that point, you know, I'm like 23 or something. And you know, you know, no one wants to get fired. 
and I didn't really have that much income at that, I didn't have any income at that point coming in. And she said, Greg, you're going to look back on this as the best day of your life. And at the time, I didn't really buy it, but now she's completely right because had I been pretty good at that job instead of awful, um, I would have stayed and then you have a kid and you have a mortgage and all that kind of stuff. And it's hard to break away, but thank God I was bad at that job and I didn't do a good job and they let me go. So it forced me to think about what I should be doing with my life. So did that lead you directly into journalism or where did you go from there? Yeah, so for, for a few years, I started some businesses. I did this thing called college tours. I took high school kids to colleges and to visit colleges and charged them. And they, they were pretty good businesses. They didn't make that much money. I didn't charge enough, I don't think. And I needed a real career at that point. And I saw an ad in the newspaper. Back then, you had people got jobs through newspapers. And the ad was to be a reporter, a financial reporter at this little newsletter. And I went in there, and I had no clips to show them. I had no articles that I'd written like most people have from high school or, or college. Um, so they said, okay, we'll give you a, a leaked document, a quote unquote leaked document, a pretend leaked document. So it was about some merger, pretend merger. And they said, write about this. So I'm writing this thing. And they said, also talk to a source. And the source is just the guy interviewing you, the guy who could be your potential boss. And I'll, I'll never forget writing this exercise and saying to myself, wait, I love Wall Street. So all this time I was like trading stocks on the side. I blew all my bar mitzvah money in camp. Um, <laughs> and I had very little bar mitzvah money, but I blew it all. Trading stocks. Um, counselors were bringing me back copies of Barron's on their days off. I was paying them so I could read that. I was literally calling brokers from my camp. And so I was really into Wall Street. And I was really into newspapers and reading and writing. My father was an academic. My brother ends up being an academic. So writing was in my blood. And I loved Wall Street and never thought about putting two together. And I said to myself, wait, you can get paid to write about Wall Street. How much fun is that? So I'm like, oh, this is great for me. I, I do this exercise. I get the job. I'm thinking, hey, pretty good. And I must, I must be really good at this thing. I'm a natural. And then it turned out, they told me afterwards, my writing was actually not very good. I was kind of, kind of writing like I was in college, still in college, but I didn't know anything about the newspaper world. And in college, you write excuse me, you, you write in a um, pyramid kind of style. In other words, you give a little hint at your thesis at the top, and then you really kill them with your, your conclusion at the end. And you do the opposite in the newspaper world because hardly anyone reads all the way to the end of the article, so you put all your best stuff at, at the top. So they said, Greg, we can teach you all that stuff, but what you're really good at is interviewing people and getting information out of those you're chatting with. And they could tell from the interview I had when I was talking to the person, on the phone. And it's my contention that everyone's got some skill that they're better than everybody else or 99% of the world at. But more often than not, you, you don't find that. You don't find that job. You don't find that skill. You don't discover it. And I luckily, thank God, stumbled into it. It was, it was serendipity, but I turned out this is what I should be doing in life. I probably wouldn't be very good at most other jobs, but this one I'm better than most because it's just I'm a naturally curious guy. I like talking to people. You put me in like a party or shul or, or anywhere. I find people interesting. I, I think everyone's got an interesting life story. If you kind of scratch the surface, they've overcome different interesting challenges. I love talking to them about that. And I can talk to people and get information, get them comfortable and get information out of them. So that's perfect for this job. And luckily, I stumbled into it. What do you think makes a great interviewer? Um, I, it's genuine curiosity. And I... 
am curious, um, maybe um, to a point where it gets a little annoying if you're, if you're married to me, but I can ask questions of, of almost anybody and they're genuine questions because let's say, I don't know, I meet a dentist, you know, uh, a kiddish or something. I don't know. How many practices do you have? How long have you been doing it? Well, how'd you deal with the last downturn in the industry and what's business like? Now, I don't know. I find this stuff kind of interesting. You can build sort of stories. I like reading obituaries, people's lives, the, the ebbs and flows. I really find that stuff interesting. So I'm curious about people and I'm curious about businesses and how they work and, and, and why don't they work and, and the biggest failures that people have had in their careers and, and their, and their business lives and successes. So a little bit, of, I'm, I'm a very much a sports guy. I'm into sports and a lot of my writing is home runs and strikeouts. People, uh, individuals, companies doing really big, interesting moves and that work out or blowing it. And you can learn a lot from, from these kinds of stories and you can put yourself in their shoes, a lot of drama. And I'm really drawn to those kind of stories. So yeah, I guess I'm just a, a, a curious person. And I think people sense that curiosity is genuine. So they'll talk to me. And I'm like a big ear, you know, they'll pick up the phone. They'll tell me stuff. They, in, in life, life today, people have very few people, they, um, others that they can really share with, that people care about. You come home, your kids don't really want to hear your opinions on the world. Your wife doesn't necessarily, your, your husband doesn't. I'm here to listen to you because I'm actually kind of interested. So as a result, people turn to me, I think, and, and maybe share stuff they should or shouldn't, uh, or they'll be open to kind of sharing things uh, on or off the record. So obviously you didn't stay at this small publication forever. Did you go straight to the Wall Street Journal? I know that was your ultimate dream and goal. And of course, it's where you've been now for quite some time. How were you able to make your way in that direction? Yeah, so I really wanted to get to the Wall Street Journal. That was my goal. If you're a baseball player, you want to play for the Yankees. If you're a financial journalist, you want to write for the Wall Street Journal. Um, but it was a bit of a leap to go from this financial newsletter to the Wall Street Journal. So I sent my clips out. Basically, I got a few scoops. They weren't like huge Watergate level scoops, but they were in the financial world. They were pretty good, especially coming from this little newsletter where a couple thousand people read it. And I sent it out to some places and I got a job offer uh, at the New York Post. And on the one hand, it's a, it's a big tabloid and finally many people will be reading my stuff as opposed to a few. But I was a little worried that I wouldn't be able to get to the Wall Street Journal because it's uh, a tabloid. It's a New York City tabloid, a lot of gossip and such. So I called a couple of people at the journal. They said, no, if you're good at it, we'll find you. If, you. if you break stories and you do good work, we'll find you. Don't worry about where you're going. And the New York Post is well read. And it teaches you actually to write for the masses. And you kind of have to write in an accessible way if you want to have a successful career as a financial journalist. So I went to the New York Post and it was an absolute blast. I was there writing about the media business. So here I was working for Rupert Murdoch, who owned the paper and writing about all of Rupert's enemies like Time Warner and Disney. And it quickly realized that um, the bigger the story and the more negative the story, the better placement I got. So I got a bunch of scoops and uh, it was just a blast. And here I was just a young person living in the Upper West Side, newly married. And if you're into sports, you know, I was, as I was, got all these top writers for the New York Post right near me. I had the gossip pages too. I would see a star. My wife would see somebody walking down the street and I'd go and tell the gossip people and describe what, what they were doing. And it would be in the paper the next day. It was crazy. So that was an absolute blast. So I, was do, I did that for about nine months and then the journal called and it's hard to say no, uh, given that that was my goal. 
At first, I was hesitant. I didn't know much about bonds. And I told them, hey, if this is my one chance to get to the journal, I'll take it. But if there are going to be other opportunities, you know, I'll say thanks, but no thanks. And they said, yeah, don't worry, don't worry. There'll be other chances. Don't go back and don't feel bad about saying no. So I said no. Then I got back to my desk at the New York Post and two people I kind of knew from the Wall Street Journal called me up and said, don't be a fool. <laughs> the Wall Street Journal may never call again. Take the job. So I did take the job. I started the bond market and I did it for a few years. And um, it, it was sort of an up and down period. I did some good work, but I also made some mistakes. I got a little obsessed with some bad stuff that was going on in the bond market and eventually wrote a good story, front page story about how individuals were being taken advantage of. But while that was happening, the bond world was kind of imploding and this is 1998 and I was writing about it, but not as much as I should have. And they were down on me for a while and I was really not the most popular person around here at the the Wall Street Journal. And the the beautiful thing about this job, uh, being a reporter, is you re you can remake your reputation with one story or a group of stories almost every day your your reputation is recreated if for good and for bad you could also be on top of the world and blow it and make some big mistakes and then uh you're no longer where you were you're off your your pedestal but that's kind of what i did i, I focused on on writing good stuff and recovering from my setback and i think everybody has to some extent have setbacks in their career in their lives. And maybe that's part of why I'm so drawn to them uh, when I write about them in my books as well. All my, all my books are about individuals who do big things in the world, financial success or athletic success, but they've all dealt with huge, remarkable setbacks and overcome obstacles. And I guess part of it is I, I was down and out at one point too, and I kind of recreated my career and got a bunch of really important scoops and wrote some big things. So what were some I of the scoops? Became um, there were a series of things. There were things like um, I got a tip a few years back that there was an individual at J.P. Morgan Chase in London that was a trader who was putting on huge positions that were putting the bank at risk. And I used that tip and ran it down and wrote a, a series of big stories about somebody called the London Whale. And early on, J.P. Morgan and others sort of poo-pooed it and they kind of mocked my stories to some extent. Uh, they called it a tempest in the teapot, Jamie Dimon said on a conference call, and don't worry. And then lo and behold, I was at this conference, and Jamie Dimon called me up uh, with a PR person on the phone to apologize. They announced that, in, in fact, this trader that I wrote about, the London Whale, had uh, made so many um, trades that turned into bad ones, and thing ended up costing the bank $6.2 billion. And there were congressional hearings and all kinds of stuff, and it changed a lot of things, how they operate. So that was from one story I did. So that was great. And um, I wrote about an individual who made the greatest trade in financial history. His name is John Paulson, and he made $15 billion for his <laughs> firm and $4 billion for himself in one year in 2007, and he made another $5 billion the next year. So I ended up writing a book uh, called The Greatest Trade Ever. About That's a pretty good haul. <laughs> I'm sorry? Is that a pretty good haul? Just yeah, pretty good year, right? Pretty, pretty good year. Wall Street yeah. Journal salary, right? Yeah, exactly. So I did that. I did, I did a story a few years ago about a guy who's on top of the bond market. He was called the king of bonds, uh, Bill Gross, and what was really going on behind the scenes at his firm and how he was squabbling with his heir apparent, Mohammed El Arian. And I wrote a series of stories kind of revealing what was, was happening and 
the difficult situation behind the scenes. And then uh, lo and behold, it was a, it was a tough situation for me because um, lo and behold, I, it was a three day yuntiv. It was two days holiday going into Shabbat. So I couldn't work. And I picked up the newspaper, sort of old school, uh, in my driveway on that Shabbat morning. And I read how this guy, Bill Gross, who I've been writing about for most of the year, front page story after front page story, had quit. And he had quit on that. It was a Rosh Hashanah. So I guess it was the Friday of Rosh Hashanah. And I couldn't write about it. And it was awful because um, here was my greatest stories of my career. And I, I couldn't write the end, the, the last piece. And my colleague had to do it. But on the other hand, it did sort of send a message that, you know, I'm sorry, people knew it, but you know, it sends a message that there are more important things than even great scoops in your career. Uh, I wasn't working on Rosh Hashanah, no matter what was happening out there. So people knew it, like people tweeted about it. New York Times tried to poke fun. They said, oh, what's the Duran going to do? Zuckerman's out for the day. And people said it was like a Sandy Kofix thing, you know, <laughs> not, not quite. I'm not exactly uh, that prominent or, or that successful. But in our little world, it sent a message maybe that, you know, we, we, we take this thing seriously. Our careers, we take quite seriously. But if you can't work, you can't work. Who have been some of the really colorful or interesting characters that you've met? Uh, I recall reading that you had an encounter at some point with Donald Trump, our current president, and also, I believe, with the infamous uh, Bernie Madoff at one point before he was outed as uh, a historically pronounced charlatan and fraudster. Can you tell us a little bit about either or both of those encounters? As a young reporter at the New York Post, uh, I wrote about, about Donald Trump and went over, went over to his office. And he was just a fascinating character because here I was young. I must have been, I don't know, 24 or something at the time. And I sat with him for a good, I don't know, half an hour, 45 minutes, maybe even a little longer. And he was selling me the whole time, almost had this insecurity about him. It's like, Greg, take a look at this model. We're going to build the greatest golf course ever. I'm like, okay. I wasn't even there to talk about golf course. I was there to talk about his real estate, but he went on and on and he had a real charm to him. You could see the charm and friendliness about him, but also this weird kind of mixed in with weird insecurity, like cockiness and yet need for me to acknowledge me this 24 year old you know cub reporter to acknowledge his successes so it was an interesting uh combination ended up writing a story about him so that was a fun experience and then not so fun experience was i got a tip around 2003 from someone in the hedge fund world saying i should check out this guy bernie madoff because he may be running a fraud and I did some investigation. I started doing some investigative work. And then I got a call from his people. And they said, oh, Greg, you want to speak to Bernie We here? Why don't you come on in? And I, at that point, it's a tough uh, decision on my part because I hadn't done enough research. I didn't really have the goods on him yet. I was just really rolling up my sleeves. And they were smart. They said, Greg, ah. so I said, let's, let's schedule this in a couple of weeks. And they said, Greg, he travels a lot. He's a busy guy. I don't think we're going to have this opportunity again. And if I were you, I would take this opportunity. So I did. I went in, I talked to him, and I challenged him with some questions. And I didn't really come out of it feeling convinced that he was legit. I always kept a file on my computer. Bernie made a file thinking I'd come back to it, thinking that something might, bad might happen. But I didn't. You get caught up uh, as a journalist, especially here 
juggling stories, chasing stories. I always have something uh, really important or it seems important that I'm working on. And it's a mistake on my part that I didn't circle back. And they played it pretty well, the, uh, the, the Madoff people. I did a little bit of work on it and the people reassured me. I knew some people that used to work there, but they clearly didn't know enough. And that's probably the biggest disappointment in my career that I didn't expose Bernie Madoff when maybe I should have. Uh, right after it came out, I did write a story about this guy, Harry Markopoulos, who wrote the SEC in, in, in New York and in Boston to tell them that of his suspicions. And he tried to warn the world. So I ended up writing a story about Harry and, and told, uh, told people about him. And that was a front page story and it ends up being a movie and a book. And I think there's somebody in the movie that, that plays me or I think... Um, not sure. I'm, I don't think I'm a full character, but he talks to me in the, in the movie. So people have called me and seen the movie. I haven't seen it. Um, so that was sort of a recovery on my part. But yeah, I kind of blew it. It's interesting you talk about these different characters and some of whom are ethically challenged, to say the least. At the same time, there must be challenges as a Jewish journalist, as a journalist who's loyal to Jewish precepts. What are some of the ethical challenges that you confront and how do you deal with them? So I'm not sure my challenges are that much greater than those, my colleagues. We all try to be as ethical as possible. And yeah, you are, you are in positions sometimes where you, you clearly have information as market moving and you obviously can't use it, you can't share it, et cetera. Um, so that's something we all deal with. I guess I've got my own challenges in that people know I'm Dati. People know I'm Orthodox. Um, I don't wear a kippah at the office, partly because I didn't when I first got here. I was kind of younger and a little more insecure, and I should have, but I didn't. And it's a little weird now to just start all of a sudden. But all, but people know, and I only go to kosher restaurants. They know that, and all my sources, and people in the in the and Wall Street. It's a small world, and everybody knows. And sometimes PR people will kind of try to use that. I'll throw in like a Yiddish word, trying to pitch a story or something. It's, it's silly. It's really silly. But um, I do feel like I represent, to some extent, uh, our community. And that is a little bit of a higher, um, um, more of a challenge, because you really don't want to make a mistake and mistreat people. And, uh, you know, I leave early. I, I, I work home from home Fridays. They let me do that um, because Shabbat can be early. And I missed all those days for Chagim, so people don't know that. Um, so yeah, I have a certain reputation. People know who I am, and as a result, I do. Maybe just the way I look at it, I feel like I've got a um, higher standard to some extent or more of a challenge, and um, I don't want to mistreat people. And one of the um, precepts at the Wall Street Journal is we do something called no surprise journalism, which means whenever we write about someone, they're never surprised by the story. It's not to say that we read them the story. We don't do that. But they're able, they get full warning, all the points that are going to be in the piece, and they can respond to them. And I'm really a big believer in that. And I get screamed at all the time and yelled at, but no one thinks, I don't think that I'm unfair. Uh, they may not like the thesis and the end result, but it's important both as, as a Wall Street Journal reporter, but also as an Orthodox Jew to just treat people fairly. And uh, you have to look at yourself in the mirror. And in, in, in my business, you can have front page story after front page story, but if you make too many errors, you're out of here and you've got no reputation. And your reputation is all we really have as, as, as journalists. So I need people to be comfortable opening up to me and telling me things they probably shouldn't tell me. So if they can't trust me, then I'm done. So yeah, it makes it that much 
of a, of a challenge, I guess. Do you think that the reality today is different in journalism? Obviously, the industry is morphing and changing in terms of the delivery mechanisms and so forth. But are the ethical challenges different? Are the pressures different? How is journalism in 2018 distinct from what it may have been when you started in this industry? We're in a new environment where it's okay to be very vocal and critical of journalists. Um, Our president uh, is vocal and critical of journalists. And as a result, uh, I think it's more comfortable for people to like likewise. So there's a guy in Wall Street, a, a big deal named Jeffrey Gunlock, who I wrote a story about last summer. And it wasn't the most critical story in the world. It just talked about how his returns have fallen a little bit and his investors, some of his investors have, have pulled out as a result. And the numbers were the numbers, so there's no disputing it. But he wasn't happy with the piece. And he went on a conference call with thousands of, of customers and it got sh- shared afterwards. And he talked about, he, he started calling me names. He called me Mother Zucker, which <laughs> kind of is amusing, <laughs> kind of funny. Um <laughs> But on the other hand, I don't think a few years ago people would have been comfortable publicly uh, making fun of pe- calling people names, calling journalists names. But so it's a new environment in that regard, and it's I guess a little more challenging. But on the other hand, I think there's also a new appreciation for what we do, uh, both at the Wall Street Journal, but journals broadly speaking, and others. So all, all, people are a little more critical than they used to be, and dismiss what what I do is fake news. But there are other people that kind of are encouraging, keep going, and we like what you're doing. And I'm not talking Democrat or Republican, and there's not that much of a distinction. You get people sharing support from, from both parties, or you get a sense that they're from both parties. So uh, it's a new, and in some ways, more difficult environment, but it's got a lot of reward as well. Shifting gears just a little bit, you mentioned previously that you've written some books. I guess, in addition to your columns and and stories and so forth. Tell us a little bit about what those books have been, uh, what the subjects have been, and what that process has been like for you as a part of your writing career. So a few years ago, my sons and I were talking about whether we can do a book together. I thought it'd be a lot of fun. And my youngest had the idea of talking to sports stars and getting their perspective on how they overcame challenges in their youth. And my son and I, we both love the idea because we believe that everybody's got some difference, some, something they're dealing with. Maybe you can't see it, maybe you can. And we thought young people could learn from the stars. So we went out and we talked to all kinds of people, Steph Curry, Tim Howard, um, all kinds of famous athletes and ask them, how did he deal with everything from racism to physical differences, sexual abuse, physical abuse? It went on and on. And some of the stories were really moving. And we thought it'd be great to share with young people. So we wrote that book called Rising Above. And then, Did you share any of the stories? Yeah. I mean, there were so many. There's um, a pitcher named Ari Dickey who was um, sexually abused growing up, um, both by a cousin and, and a babysitter. And he grew up so poor and had such difficulty in his family upbringing that he, he used to break into apartments um, that were being rented. He was a smart guy. He went and looked to see in the neighborhood what apartments were being rented. He would break in just to have somewhere to sleep at night. He would roll up a sweatshirt, put it down on the ground and go to sleep at night. 
and uh, he wanted to be a pitcher and he was a fireballer and had a great fastball and then he lost it and he had to recreate his whole life and really hit rock bottom and uh, was close to suicide at one point and he shared all these stories with us. We were sitting in the dugout at Yankee Stadium and he went on so long that the team needed to practice. This was Toronto Blue Jays a couple of years ago. He was on their team and he, he had to get on the field and literally Troy Tulitsky, the shortstop, had to tell my son Eli, uh, excuse me, I, I get to get on the field to stretch, stretch before the game. But Ari Dickey was so uh, generous with his time sharing us these stories and I think he wanted to get them off his chest. He's written a book too, but he told it to us in a little different way, I think, than how he wrote it. I think he told it like he was talking to kids. And that was the beautiful thing about going to these interviews with my sons. We met with all kinds of people, Serge Ibaka, other types of people together. And Ari Dickey told us how he dealt with all these challenges and how he overcame them all. And yeah, he was close to suicide, but he got them help. He talked to a therapist. And time and time again, the stars we talked to, LeBron, uh, Dwayne Wade, all kinds of people in our book, they found someone in their life. It could be a mentor, it could be a coach, it could be an uncle, and it, it was important to do. So we wrote this book to try to help those young people, and then we ended up following it up. We did a book that came out just a few months ago about female stars and what they've overcome. And we talked to Venus Williams, and we f featured um, her story with her sister Serena. We talked to Simone Biles, and again, some of the stories will just blow you away. What these people have overcome, you really need much, much more than just athletic ability. You need the perseverance and tenacity and grit that we all want to teach our children, I think. I'd like my kids. That's part of the reason I did it as well, so they could maybe learn some of these lessons. So, we, yeah, we wrote these books, and I, I tried to sprinkle in a little uh, Jewish element here and there. So, there was a, a coach, a, a hockey coach, who was abused growing up, physically abused, and never learned how to read or write because he'd get to school every day and the poor kid couldn't think about school. He was thinking about what was happening at home to his mother right there and what was going to happen that night to him. So he never learned how to read or write. He was functionally illiterate and he had to fake it his whole life. And the only model he had for what it means to be a father, what does it mean to be a good husband was the local Jewish grocer who hired him after school. And he would go to his house sometimes and just have dinner with them. And he was blown away by it and it left a real impression. And he brought it up and I was so proud to include it in our book. Um, it's just nice to kind of put a positive spin in, in some of the people that have left an impression on these people. And if they were Jewish, it, you know, it makes me proud to include them. Awesome. And Greg, what advice do you have for aspiring young journalists uh, in an era in which you know, print media seems to be dying, ossifying, if you will? Is there a future in journalism? What would you advise a young person interested in this particular field in 2018? So on the one hand, it's a more challenging environment for journalists. There are cutbacks in a lot of places. We don't get paid so much. But on the other hand, there are more outlets than ever. And you can start your own, your blogs, all kinds of voices out there, new voices, new places. And there are great opportunities. And if you can break stories there'll be a job for you. And it's a lot of fun, this job. If I won the lottery tomorrow, I'd still come into the office. Maybe I'd take a few days off, but I'd still come <laughs> in and keep my job. Because um, I have, I have a, an ability to affect the world and share stories and have an impact on people, meet interesting, fascinating people. I mean, every day I pick up the phone, I'll talk to a billionaire about he's doing something interesting or challenge him or 
or her and what they're doing and call them on it and doing something wrong. We, we, we write about that too. It's a, it's a unique position we're in. And if you're interest, a curious person and interested in public policy and how the world works, you can kind of dig into it and figure it out and have an impact. So it's still a lot, a lot of fun. It's just a little more challenging. I, I write these books partly because I love them and partly because I got to make some money. My kids are in yeshiva. So I go to, you know, they go to day school and I'm going to college soon. So you got to hustle a little bit more maybe than, than we used to as journalists, but it's still a remarkable and fun job for me anyway. And just in closing, Greg, tell us about your future aspirations, any exciting projects or books coming down the pike that we can look forward to in the near or not so near future. So right now I'm working on a book about a group of individuals at a firm called Renaissance Technologies. And they're really at the forefront of this trend called quant or quantitative investing, basically using computers and algorithms to beat the markets. And they succeeded. And this guy, Simons, is worth about $30 billion. And along the way, one of his top guys, a guy named Bob Mercer, made so much money that he was able to, in effect, put Donald Trump in the, in the White House because he's the one who put uh, Kellyanne Conway and Steve Bannon in the Trump administration and in the campaign first, I should say, then the administration. And so these guys uh, have done so well that they're impacting the world and changing the world as really even uh, for good or for bad, you can argue. So I'm writing all about them. And through these individuals, I usually focus on characters. That's my big thing. I have uh, a love interesting individuals, but through them, you can get at some interesting themes like how markets are changing and whether we as a, in society want these mega rich people dominating charities and politics and having this kind of impact, uh, for, again, for good or for bad. This guy, Jim Simons, is at the forefront of financing cures for different things and autism research and, and et cetera. But it raises questions about uh, how have we changed a society such that the billionaires have such an impact. So hopefully I'll, I'll, I'll get that done in the, over the next year or so, uh, God willing, and um, we'll take it from there. Amazing. Greg Zuckerman, thank you very, very much for being an inspiration and a tremendous example of both integrity and professional accomplishment fused into one. Greg Zuckerman, thank you very much. Oh, it was a pleasure to be here. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at jewsyoushouldknow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.